Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Will. And a very warm welcome to the very first episode of The Run-In. It's the UK's new orienteering podcast. So later in this episode, we're going to be joined by Chris Jones. We'll also be summing up the UK season before moving on to a preview of the first World Cup event of the year, which is going to take place this weekend in Finland. Um, But first of all, Will, I think we should start by introducing ourselves. Why don't you, you go first? Yeah, certainly. So um, I am William Gardner. I've been an orienteer since I was about four years old. Got into it through um, my father who started when he was at university. He uh, used to drag myself and my two brothers kicking and screaming along to events on cold, wet winter weekends um, across Britain. Um, Gradually got more into it as I was a junior. um, Progressed up through the ranks of the West Midlands junior regional squad, um, went to university at University of Sheffield and managed to start getting selected for the GB international teams. So I've competed at European Youth Championships, uh, Junior World Championships, World Universities, Europeans, and then made my WOC um, World Championships debut in 2017 in Estonia. Um, and lucky enough to still be doing the sport and um, trying to trying to push forward and and yeah and move up in the elite scene currently work full-time for Barclays Bank living that that corporate lifestyle um, which yeah can always impact slightly on your training but there's only so many hours in the day that uh, that you have for training and we'll hear a bit more about that when when Chris speaks later um, and yeah pushing for the world champs this year in in Norway and with one eye on um, a home, home world champs in 2022 in Edinburgh, but that, that's me. Fantastic. Well, I, our stories start very similar and then uh, diverge very quickly. My name is Catherine Betts. Um, I again have started orienteering since I was very, very small through both uh, my mum and then and her dad introduced her to orienteering. So I'm third generation. Um, orienteer um i grew up uh in south central south central junior squads um, and southern navigators and then uh, tried to introduce more people to orienteering first at durham university and then also at sheffield university and um whilst i was there i had my uh, first foray into commentating which was at the um the world championships in 2015 when they were up in scotland and since then i've done uh, i've commentated at every single world championships um so far last season i was lucky enough to do all four world cup rounds um this is commentating for the international orienteering federation on their their web live streams and um this year i think i'm going to all four um world uh, cup races as well so i kind of see the world of elite orienteering from a kind of a different perspective but will can bring you the uh, from what it's like from within the the gb camp um and and will we both kind of had the idea of of doing a podcast at the same time i think or in, independently almost at the same time yeah so i consume a lot of podcast content <laughs> on um my commutes to work out uh, any easy runs that I'm doing and I was always a bit confused as to why there wasn't one for orienteering and um, last summer a Danish uh, chap I know called um, Eskil Schoening said that he was doing a Danish version of um, an orienteering podcast getting people from the Danish national team on interviewing them all this kind of stuff why why is there not an English language version of this it should be relatively easy to do I've mentioned it to a couple of people and got shot down by a couple of people, so, which is never good. Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, luckily, obviously, yourself, Catherine, had the idea um, and got together. And, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's hopefully going to bring some insight into the elite scene within the UK, where the sport's moving towards, um, how our runners do at international events, and kind of bring an insight that a lot of people might not get when they just you know, turn up as an event at the weekend. So I think we're going to start with looking at um, what's been going on with the season so far. And whilst the international season is just kind of kicking off, the it feels like the British season is 
pretty much come to a conclusion and I think therefore we'll start with um, the JK and with the men's sprint we've got a new uh, new sprint champion haven't we Will? Yeah, very fortuitous that the uh, the first race we discuss is the one I managed to win, which was not rigged at all. I can promise you that. Um, so the JK, uh, the Jan Kalsrum um, Orienteering Festival, is always a pretty pivotal moment in the British season. Normally, we use it within the British team for our selection races for mm. the international races. So it's it's really the focal point of um, most British elite orienteers and tyre sprint. Uh, this year, yeah, the sprint was in Oldershot Garrison, uh, just to the west of London. Um, so military barracks, pretty fast, pretty flat. Generally, a lot of kind of 48, 52 route choices that you had to deal with. So you took the win by 23 seconds and um, you said you just, you were in, the, I think, the right place mentally for that kind of race. Mm. So I, I've struggled quite a lot to get in a mentally good place for important races. Um, and I've tried quite a lot of uh, different tacks this year when I've been building up to races that have been important for me. I've tried to go in with a real focus on a, a different end goal, that everything's building to something else, rather than this is the be all and end all of my orienteering career. And if I screw this one up, then I'm gonna be out of the squad and all of this kind of stuff. So I normally heap a lot of mental pressure on myself so I just tried to approach everything in a much calmer, slightly more fun way and just treat everything as a, f a fun activity and go, right, well, I'm here and I'm doing what I, I enjoy. I'm not at work. Um, and I think actually working full time has helped me garner that mindset more of going, well, I'm not in the office. I'm not <laughs> under stress in these races, really, compared to what I do on the day to day. And this is fun. This is meant to be fun. Yeah, well, it paid off. So second place um, was Alison McLeod and third place Murray Strain. And on the women's uh, sprints, this is also actually it was a it was a world ranking event. So get some world ranking points. Uh, the win mm -hmm. was taken by Megan Carter Davies, second Cecilia Anderson and uh, third place Lizzie Ingham, the New Zealander who was uh, over for the JK a great win there for Megan as well and uh, we will be talking about her a lot in this recap of the season uh, she's had a really really fantastic um fantastic year this year yeah already. Megan's been on fire since since January and uh annoy I say annoyingly I mean it, it's great that she's so good um her, her boyfriend Ben Mitchell and, and myself were running against her at the Scottish Relay Championships last weekend and she was ahead of us for the first couple of couple of k and <laughs> like I think even for the guys we're a bit scared of racing against Meg because we know that on on her day she can beat us, and um, and it's fantastic that you know that every single year she's making improvements, um, and you can just see the the physical um, leaps she's making in terms of the gaps that she's winning by. In, uh, in the JK, we moved over to uh, Windmill Hill, so the men's middle distance race, which was um, won by Peter Hodkinson, second place Graham Gristwood, and third place Pete Bray. Peter had been focusing on this race all winter. Um, me and him know each other quite well. We were out in Australia uh, working down in, in Melbourne for the whole of the winter in 2017, 2018. And I knew that this was a race that he was solely focusing on. He wasn't running the sprint. Normally he's a, a pretty uh, blooming good sprint orienteer. And I think for him to get the win after a winter where he's been struggling with some injury problems was obviously fantastic to see. And a real confirmation that he's in good shape moving towards the um, the World Cups and the walk test races as well. And I think he's always been traditionally seen as more of a sprint orienteer. Mm. And the, the last year or so, he's really starting to improve in his, his forest um, technique. And to beat Gigi as well, who he's come back from some really bad injuries mm. um, that mm. he's been suffering with for the last kind of 12, 14 months. And the fact he was on the podium was great to see. And, and Pete Bray as well, yeah. who, who maybe some people don't know too well. He's not... He's kind of in and out of the, the squad sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. And the fact that he was on the podium for a world ranking event at the test races was great. And I think that almost guaranteed him uh, his selection for the World Cups as well. So it was a pretty pivotal race, actually. Yeah, and the, the women's middle, I mean, I was just looking on the uh, splits browser and wind splits of the of what people have been doing. And everybody seemed to make a, quite a few mistakes um, in this uh, race. But uh, Kat Taylor, 
she um, was fa essentially fast enough for her mistakes not to matter, and she caught up Charlotte Watson, made him seemed to make a mistake there, but were, had such great speed. Uh, second um, was Joe Shepard, and third was Megan Carter Davies, and then a little note for Cecilia Anderson, who was sixth, who had really high speed, but some uh, mistakes, including two and a half minutes to number eleven, seemed to have you know cost her that podium position um but yeah a great race for for cat again someone who's had injuries this year yeah she's had a really tough winter had, had to do a lot of cross training um so cat lives in in sheffield now and trains a lot in the peak district which during the winter can be pretty bleak and grim mm, mm. um so she's just been out on the bike smashing up the hills there so really hasn't got as much running training in as she would have liked so the fact that she could just come again like Peter, focus on that sole race and win it is great to see. I'd, I'd like to mention Cecile as well, that the fact that this year I think she's really stepped up and she's really one to look out for mm, next yeah. season because I don't think a lot of people, especially within the squad, saw her challenging for the positions that she did. Absolutely, she was second in the, the long distance at the JK and I, th I think she's a second year senior, so that's really impressive. Mm. It's so hard to transition into into the seniors uh, let's move on to the long distance which is at cold ash um, we'll do the men's race first will it looks like i was looking at the width splits looks like you were leading and then um what happened oh oh dear yeah so i i made the choice the stupid choice um when i was on the run from work during the week beforehand to run without socks which caused me to get some blisters on the arches of my feet. Uh, after about 3K, these blisters had completely ripped apart and um, I couldn't, actually after the JK, I couldn't put shoes on for three days, um, which made traveling over to Tia Mila an interesting experience. Um, but I was, I spent, yeah, the next kind of 17K just in absolute agony. And with the heat of the day as well, mm -hmm. I think it was quite unseasonably warm and I could hear on the commentary beforehand the uh, yourself, Catherine, saying, oh, you know, the best strategy that people are doing the good times is they're going out, pacing it steady, not getting cooked, and yep. they're, they're finishing strong. And I heard it was like, nah, I'm going to go out hard. I'm going to go and catch uh, Chris Mivard, and that's the way I'm going to race this. And I think it went, it went well for a while. And like I said, I was in the lead, and I recognised this final control as the pivotal moment, I'd already start to get into a bit of a negative headspace. Mm. You know, my focus start to drift. I went, right, control 37, that's the one, that's the key one. A vague patch of, of ditches, you know, yep. kind of went into the circle. It wasn't mapped quite how I was expecting it to be. And yeah, I just took that off the ball and a yeah, minute and a half gone. And, and there goes the overall win, which I will not forget for a while, I think. And Chris Mivard, I think a very worthy winner of that. Well, I think he, um, I think he actually had the fastest split on the long leg as well. So he just, oh, he go, just yeah. and, and he, and he, and he, you could notice that he was keeping the good speed at the end. So yeah, he just managed to, to pace it really well. And in the uh, the women's long distance at the JK, uh, again Megan Carter Davies taking that title there. It's, it's important to note though that that Cat Taylor didn't run that long distance. Um, it looks like she made some mistakes and was talking to her afterwards. She didn't. She said she didn't feel like she had a good run at all. But you know her speed was really so good that it didn't didn't matter. Uh, second was Cecilia Anderson, and um, third uh, was Lizzie Ingham. Mm. Same podium as the sprint. Yeah, consistency yeah. is alive and well at the JK. But yeah, Absolutely. Meg, it's great to be in a place where she can just run and have the confidence that even if she makes a mistake, that she's still going to be fighting for the win. Um, and like you said before, the fact that Cecile was um, you know, second after only being a senior for the second year now, mm -hmm. it's really mm -hmm. hard to transition to those long distance races. Yes. And to do that is a great sign moving forward. And Lizzie Ingham, Ingham as well, she's someone who's suffered a lot recently from um, heart problems and had to have heart surgery. So the fact she's back competing at a really high level and is still on the comeback trail is fantastic to see. She's, she's not someone I really know personally. Um, She's she's from New Zealand, lives in Norway, runs for Halden Ski Club. So she does know quite a few of the girls from the GB team. Yeah, and hopefully she'll be able to put together a really good collection of runs uh, in the World Championships, which is, uh, yeah. as you said, based in Norway, is basically going to be on home soil for her. So let's uh, let's do the relays quickly, which um, 
first place on the JK Trophy was uh, Fourth Valley, the team of Mark Nixon, Chris Millard and Graham Gristwood. Uh, Notice that uh, Gigi port- brought the team up a few places at the end. Uh, I think also some credit needs to go to Ben Windsor, who was fastest on the first leg for Drongo. Uh, any comments yeah. on the on the relay? I've got a, I've got a few comments on the relay. <laughs> now this is going to come across. Um, Hopefully not in a bad way. Um, I was on last leg for Octavian Drubas, got sent out in the lead. Um, great job by uh, Nathan Lawson and Matt Elkington um, sending me out in that position uh, ahead of um, Johnny Crickmore for Edinburgh and, and mm. Gigi for uh, for Valley. And I knew it was going to be a very tough thing to hold that position because both Johnny and Graham hadn't run the day before. Mm. And it seems to be quite a trend that's going on with people skipping the long distance to rest up for the relay. And I know it's a sensible thing to do, but it does seem a little unfair. Um, it, well, it seemed very unfair as I was running down the run-in uh, and could see them in front of me going, hey, if I hadn't run 20k yesterday, could have had sure. that. But yeah, yeah. Gigi's quite classy in the, uh, in the way he goes about things. And it, I mean, it would have been, even if I was fresh, I don't think I could have kept him behind me, to be honest with you. Um, running behind him for a couple of controls he's just very aggressive on the lines he chooses through the forest he's mm. always always on it pushing for every single spare centimetre he can sa- he, centimetre that he can save so I'm sure that I wouldn't have uh, wouldn't have kept ahead of him anyway because I was making a couple of mistakes and uh, and and was a bit unsure at times in some of the rhododendron bushes that were that were on the map but mm. no great that that he won and uh, Chris Mivard as well was up all night after the long distance with um, heat stroke, so just oh. kind of throwing up all night, which I'm not sure many people knew at the time. No. They tried to keep it under under wraps, so they had a pretty good, uh, pretty good performance. And uh, yeah, Ben Windsor gave Mark Nixon a good run for his money on first leg. Ben's always someone that you've got to watch out for. He's he's not a name that many people know, but he's one of those people who he can just sneak up and, and beat you if you if you if you're on a bad day and he's not a good one. He's, he's dangerous. Fantastic. Well, the women's relay uh, was won by Edinburgh University, not Durham University, as I kept announcing, because um, there was a bit of a mix up with like which team was starting in which bib. And it was they were changed last minute to make sure that the top teams didn't have the same gaffles. Uh, So it was Edinburgh University that um, won. So their team, Laura King, Emma Wilson and Faye Walsh put together a really great team performance. Uh, again, we need to talk about Cecilia Anderson, who joined with Tessa Strain, was fastest on the first leg. And um, we, of course, you also need to talk about Kat Taylor, who's very, very strong on the anchor leg for SYO. Yeah, so I'm not sure how many relays in a row now Edinburgh have won. I think it's quite a few, a bit like FVO in the men's relay. Mm. But they just keep on churning out good women's relay teams. It's amazing. As you said, Tessa Strain, Cecilia Anderson as well, fighting out on first leg. Uh, Tessa's had a bit of time away from the sport. Mm. doing a bit more on the mountain running side of things um, so the fact she can just come back in still run you know, one of the fastest legs on, on first leg and the fact that Cecile was neck and neck with her the whole way really shows the strength of Cecile herself and the fact that Tessa can just come and slip back into the orienteering scene and, and maybe maybe she'll, she'll come back full time hopefully um, but yeah, Kat Taylor um, for SYO I think that team's going places next year will be a very strong strong group of girls Absolutely. Um, so let's quickly try and do some of uh, the British uh, champs results. We had uh, the mixed sprint relay, which is technically not a championships, but um, was still a British mixed sprint relay event. And um, that was up at Bradford Uni um, mm-hmm. at the beginning of May. And Edinburgh University again took that title. Faye Walsh, Alison Masson, Sasha Chaplin and Zoe Harding. They had a really good, like quite strong team overall whereas other teams had some very strong runners but maybe not quite as as consistent overall and uh, yeah they, they put together a really good run you've got to be consistent across those four legs and you can have three great runners but if you've got a fourth that you know is going to let you down on the on the men's side or the women's side you can't afford to have that and again like we said just before for the women's relay at the JK Edinburgh have just got a good group of athletes at the moment and they're, and they're all quite young they're pushing each other they're training hard together um, and it's great to see that Zoe was back as well she's been struggling mm-hmm. with illness for the last couple of years so 
came back and I think she pulled them up a couple of places on that last leg because yeah. they were behind going into it. So The British Mixed Relays have been held a few years. I think it was the third or fourth time it's been held, but definitely this one was the most... Um, uh, busy most competitive one and yeah. i think obviously being linked with the the long distance champs and the relay champs so i hope actually it gets like a more solid place in the in in the fixtures list that's maybe paired with um with the british um long distance champs because then i think you'll get more teams traveling to go and get some good competition and yeah i think it was really exciting to commentate on so gets my vote yeah no definitely more of those please um, yes. organizers out there because it's a sport that we do well in yes. internationally as well. We always perform well at the World Cups in the mixed sprint relay. It's always a focus for the world champs. And I think we've been on the podium. I'm not even sure how many times we've been on the podium now since it's mm. come in. We're always very consistent at it. So we need yeah. that kind of competition in the UK to push ourselves on, I think. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to the long distance championships, which were at Kilnsey and the men's was won by Alistair McLeod, who had a really pretty steady run throughout so second place was uh, Sasha Chaplin who um, was uh, leading for a while and then at third place we had Duncan Coombs as well. I want to start with Duncan Coombs actually it was just fantastic to see him on the podium he's again someone who maybe people overlook he was a very talented junior um, and he's incredibly fit most of the year but sometimes just stuffs it up at races and he just delivered on the on this one on the day and I'm not sure many people expected him to be on the mm. podium but the fact that he was is, is just great and I think it's made him slightly change his plans for later in the season so watch this space to see if he, mm. if he rocks up at any important races in, uh, in July. Hint, 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 uh, world champ selection races. Yeah, um, cough, cough. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, Alistair McLeod as well, great run from him. I know that um, Sasha was in the league for quite a, lot of, quite a long time out there. It was a very hilly, very fast, mm. um, like kind of low grass underfoot area, open moorland. Um, and Sasha started really hard, and I think mm. he went out there trying to win it in the first kind of 6K or so. But I could see Alistair catching me out in the terrain, and and I think once you're in that, when you're in that kind of open terrain and you catch sight to someone, there's that extra kind of carrot for you to chase, mm. and mm. and he's got Pete, Peter Bray in his sights, got me in his sights, and yeah, he's he's always strong on that hilly stuff, and uh, he didn't make any mistakes, and that's where it was won right at the end in those last couple of controls. Absolutely, and on the women's long. Um... Megan Carter Davies again taking again. the win by by over seven minutes, and she had eleven out of the twenty three controls. She had the fastest split time. Again, Cecilia Anderson taking another silver medal this year. Sarah Jones in third place. Fourth, Zoe Harding, as you said, and fifth place. I actually want to pick out um, Grace Malloy, who's a first year W twenty, um, and was running up essentially two years to the senior class. Had a fantastic result in fifth place. Yeah, one to watch definitely at, uh, at Jaywalk this year in the long distance because if she can do that on a tough, hilly British long for it, you know, running up two years, like you say, into the senior class, you know, I think it's a good sign for her um, junior world championships long distance, which I'm, I'm pretty sure she's in for. Um, but Megan, yeah, again, a win by seven minutes in the long distance. It's what you, it's what you want. It's, you know, it, yeah. it almost seems easy talking about it, which I know obviously for her out in the terrain, None of that's going to be easy. She's pushing at uh, absolute maximum, but yeah, she just seems to have a knack for winning at the moment. And yeah, what what can the other girls do <laughs> to beat her? Yeah, it's very difficult when you're having that that bigger gap to the towards the rest of the field. Um, moving on again to the relay, which is in Middleton Woods. So first place. Um, this year were airy and tears so dame blomquist joe woodley and alistair mcleod they pipped um feo the same team mark nixon chris smithard and graham griswood they were in second place and uh we should also point out the edinburgh university team who were really fast unfortunately they were disqualified after a mispunch on the second leg but sasha chaplin ran the fastest last leg of everybody so um yeah that's quite a competitive one this one yeah, and I think Sasha ran through Alistair on that last leg. So mm. I, th I think Alistair came in, obviously not knowing that um, the the Ewok second leg had mispunched. So quite a surprise for him coming into the uh, into the arena to be told that he was in the lead. But obviously gutting for Ewok 
I think most people have been there when either yourself or someone you know is mispunched. It's even worse in a relay. I've done it before. I think most people have had the experience. And, and yeah, he's just got to you know, count his codes next time and, and not do it. But it's great to see Air winning, you know, breaking the um, Fourth Valley stranglehold on the relays. And Dane Blunk was coming back into the sport from uh, uh, some time in athletics as well. He's been over in um, the States running for a, a collegiate athletics team. Yep. And um, yeah, back giving orienteering a crack and came back, I think, first on first leg as well. So maybe he'll be back yeah. for sprint orienteering for a sprint walk next year. Yeah, we will wait and see. And the women's relay, it was a pretty weak field um, with uh, no Edinburgh University team this time. But the winners were uh, SYO with Kim Baxter, Mary Fleming and Kat Taylor. Second place, uh, Arian Tears with Alice Leak, Evie Conway and Bryony McLeod also uh, should note that Grace Malloy ran the second ran the fastest of the second leg runners yeah backing up after long distance Man, that, that jaywalk's going to be interesting to watch I think for some of the Brits running at it this year there's a great group of British juniors um, going for the junior world champs Kim Baxter is almost ageless she just keeps on <laughs> running in the senior class um, year after year after year, I think she retired. I can't remember the year that she retired from um, the GB international team. Now um, she's gonna she's gonna kill me for saying that. Yeah, it makes it sound like she's ancient. She's not. Um, but yeah, it's great to see again SYO win. And obviously, it's a shame that York weren't there. But um, to see a different name on the trophy is is fantastic. And it was quite a technical area as well. Um, mm. You know a a kind of bluebell sloped woods, lots of different holly, bush, holly bushes and rhododendron bushes scattered throughout it. Quite a lot of actual contour detail in there as well, um, with some bell pits from the mining work in the 19th century. So really quite technical area. And those, I mean, the girls from SYO just consistently um, hit everything and, and yeah, got the win, which is great. Fantastic. Okay, so that's uh, most of the main UK races, but... Um, the event that typically kicks off the international season is uh, Team Mila, which has the uh, the women's uh, race of uh, five leg five runners. They uh, go out during the day, and then there's the Team Mila race, Team Mila Kevlin, which literally translates as ten man relay, uh, which is overnight uh, with the famed long night leg, leg four, where everybody uh, it's not gaffled, so everybody. Uh, basically tries to get on a train and and group together you were there will there were a lot of other brits in there how was it ah for me fantastic so i was running for a new um scandinavian club this year for um ifk luddinger and i was given the role of first leg um and the first team so i was under quite a lot of stress beforehand you know about how i was going to perform in this quite high pressure situation for a new team there were putting a lot of faith in me. It was quite a green, grotty area. Uh, so quite like quite like Britain, actually. I, I felt quite at home there. Um, mm. But as soon as we kind of got started, hit the first um, forking, and uh, Johnny Crickmore, who was running for OK Ravina, was next to me. Uh, Tim Robinson, a Kiwi, running for um, Cuve, their Finnish club. Um, he was there as well, just kind of tucked in behind. Peter Hodgkinson running for uh, Lillemark, a club based in Oslo. Um, was there as well so just to have kind of four or five English speakers just sitting at the front of this pack on, on Tia Mila is what you can only dream of really and I was there oh it was it's fantastic and I was racing with um right through to the end with Aston Key an Australian guy um who I lived with over in, lived with the family over in Australia when I was living in Melbourne there so to race head to head with him was was excellent uh our team um kind of drifted off after after a long night. We uh, had a couple of illnesses and injuries um, hit the team, which was a bit of a shame. But we stuck in on the long night train. As you said, it's a really pivotal thing to get through to long night to almost survive the night. That's mm. what you're aiming for. The, the race almost restarts after leg four. Um, and you just try and get your, your man on leg four through to the end uh, or through onto that changeover in as best position as you can. And I know that uh, Alistair McLeod running for, for Lillemarker, um, Peter Hoskinson's club, was the last person to jump on the uh, the the train, as it's called, um, mm. that was being driven by um, Cuvée's runner, Alexander Kratov. He's kind of known as 
the king of the night. He always <laughs> just sits at the front of this train of people through the forest and they're all following him. Uh, I don't think any of the people in that group have any shame about doing it as well. I think this is the one race of the year we can get away with it completely. But yeah, uh, Alistair McLeod had a great run on, on fourth leg, along with um, Duncan Coombs as well. And uh, yeah, no, I think it was just a good a good day for the Brits, really, um, yeah. on that one. Yeah, well, Alistair McLeod, he was actually, uh, looking at the splits, he was fastest on the long, long night leg and caught yeah. uh, Lillemarker up 20 places to third. I think we should also... Uh, little shout out to Ralph Street 22nd on the last leg uh, for his club they ended up finishing in 29th place and also uh, Graham Griswood ran the leg 7 for Cullivan Rusty and he was third fastest on his leg pulling the team up to second and they, they were fourth overall which is obviously a fantastic result he might be the best of the uh, the, uh, the best Brit at the moment who's looking in a place to do it because Cullivan Rusty's always always a good team they've always got good runners and they know how to set a relay up so maybe next year gray might be uh might be up on that podium yeah we, we will we will wait and see and of course we should talk about the women's race as well yep. the dam cavlin eight women from the um gb team were out there uh they all actually apart from the ones who started on first leg they all pulled up places for their team which is absolutely fantastic and um, particularly we can look at megan carter davies who was on the last leg for her um finnish club that i don't know how to pronounce uh, and ryland rick menti i think oh yes that's i, I, I think i yeah. probably butchered it completely We'll go with that. <laughs> uh, she, uh, the Finnish clubs, I can tell you, they are the most difficult to pronounce. Um, it's it's all the vowels. She so she was twenty fifth fastest on the last leg, but pulled her team up thirty places, which is really fantastic. And Cat yeah. Taylor ran the second leg for OK Sedaton, and she was thirty ninth fastest and pulled up sixty seven places. Um, there's you know ridiculous numbers of runners out in the forest, uh, hundreds and hundreds, and um, you can have really big impact on your team. And those are two who did just that. That's a pretty stressful uh, way to run as well, because the amount of peak bodies you've got to move through, because at that stage of the relay, there's a lot of elephant tracks out in the forest, so they're a lot quicker to run on. And if you move out of those, it's almost like you're, like you're kind of ploughing a, a fresh furrow in, in, in snow almost. But I think it just shows how, you know, where, where the British team is moving towards and how strong our runners are becoming. If you know, all of those guys are pulling up places compared to um, the Scandinavians who we normally look at and revere, is is great to see. And, I mean, yeah, it's a crazy amount of places for cats to pull up. Well, that's the um, what's often considered uh, the, the first big race of the main season internationally and the, the first race... Um, with, that's going to count with what the nations are going to race in is going to be the first world cup round in finland uh, this weekend we're going to have a preview of that coming up but first of all uh, we've got a chat with uh, chris jones of course bronze medalist from the european championships last summer in the sprint discipline and um let's hear what he has to say chris thank you very much for joining us um how first question how do you describe what you do to people say you meet at work, something like that, who know absolutely nothing about orienteering? If I think someone's particularly competitive, I'll emphasise that. If, if I think someone likes being outdoors, I'll emphasise that. But for me, you know, I, I just try and t take it back to the sort of simplest form, saying that it's, you know, it's a running race, but instead of having a marked course, you have to navigate between checkpoints. I think one of the things with orienteering is it can be, well, it is, it's, it's an incredibly complicated sport at times, but actually in its simplest form, it's, it's quite understandable. And when did you first start orienteering? So I, I, I had sort of the, um, the typical entry into orienteering really. <laughs> so, um, my, I was about sort of 12 years old and I went along with my family and, um, you know, first off, probably I wasn't very good and I wasn't very enthusiastic. Um, but you sort of, you start to make friends when you're, you're that age, you you know, and then you look forward to going back and you start to improve and you start to enjoy it. And so after a couple of years, I started to get onto the sort of Welsh squad and 
the sort of junior regional squad things and then she sort of yeah went from there really we're going to go um, a little curveball right back up to the present. Uh, it's obviously the first Forest World Championships year this year. How, as a sprint specialist, does this affect your year? It's probably affected, it affects my year quite a lot because I'm not planning on going to walk this year. Um, in the winter, I sort of am denied a little bit about maybe um, going for the relay because we've had some great performances, but... At the end, it boiled down to I didn't want to do part of a job and I didn't want to try and do too many things because I mm-hmm. the worst thing for me would be if I got into the relay team partly on the basis of what I've done before and then I ran badly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've done that before. I've been in relay teams and run badly before and it's not a, not a good feeling. And I, I just think I'd rather have... Hopefully later in the year I'll do um, a World Cup and that will be sort of focused on sprint and really focused on preparing for next year. But otherwise it's just, it's given me a bit of space this year so I can go and do things that, you know, or maybe not do things that I wouldn't have done before, but put a little bit more emphasis on on that. So I'm in this summer I'm going to do... Um, a lot of track races, uh, sort of 5Ks and, and one 10K. Just on that, Chris, um, looking forward from the World Cups in uh, October and November through to next season then, with it um, being a split Europeans as well um, that's coming in, will that tailor what you focus on in the international calendar? So if there's a sprint walk, will you focus only on that and then skip the Forest Europeans as well? Or would you look at doing both when you come back in from the track? I haven't really given it too much thought. Um, so next year, the the goal is going to be world champs. It's long enough out that I can harbour hopes of of doing everything. Um, the sooner, you, the closer you get to world champs, the more the sort of realism kicks in. And I don't know what the schedule is, but it's three disciplines and however many races with the knockout sprint. And at some point, you might realise that that's that's too much to do. But um, the sprint's the real focus. I absolutely love running relays. So that would be what got me to uh, sort of focus on the forest. Um, so it just it just depends how it all fits in. Um, I want to go back to talking a little bit about the track. Obviously, it's not something that um, every orienteer decides to do, though, you know, a lot do do, you know, race training and and track stuff um why why is athletics particularly important to you Uh, i just i just like running i like running and i like racing and i sort of i i can get a lot of enjoyment from sort of lots of different types of running so do you know running an orienteering race is a specific sort of feeling and it's it's quite um it's quite intense sort of mentally and sort of emotionally. It's quite to the same extreme. Whereas, you know, a track race is, is just wholly, well, it, you know, there's a, a mental and emotional component, but you really have to push yourself right to the limit. And so it's a different sort of ball game. And the same with sort of mm. cross country and hill running is they all have this sort of different weights of, what's required and I just I just quite like sort of pushing myself and seeing what I can do I've done quite a lot of cross country because it's in the winter and um, it it fits in quite nicely with the orienteering I've done a quite I've done a bit of hill running you know I've done sort of long and short ones but I haven't done as much track running as maybe I I'd liked and actually I tried a couple of years ago uh, I did a few 10Ks um, in the hopes one year, it was the Commonwealth Games uh, sort of year of qualification. And I just sort of had thought, well, I'll have a crack. And um, and I, I, I did much better than I thought. And so it was quite, it's quite nice to sort of go, well, actually, well, how, how well can I do? But I think that's a great point because a lot of the times... I think orienteers, we put ourselves in this bubble of 
we're different to other runners and that we we can't do these things. But as you just said, like just going and having a crack at it is just a great way to to treat it. And there's no pressure. There's no you know, real mental strain. Like just go do your best and and put it on the line. And that's what everyone on these kind of track races is trying to do. They're all going for PBs and they'll all hurt themselves in the same way, just for different times. And I think that's uh, something that we do forget about with orienteering sometimes. Yeah, and I, th- I think the thing with orienteers is actually we, we know how to race because if you're running an orienteering race, you're out there on your own for sort of 15 to 90 minutes, depending on what it is. And you have to manage your pacing and you have to manage yourself to to really sort of push enough, but don't push too much. And so... I think orienteers sometimes don't give themselves enough credit that we're really good runners. And actually those sort of skills of managing ourselves in the forest also sort of go cross over into the other sort of running disciplines. Uh, I don't think people give us the credit as well. The amount of times I've been told by athletic coaches, I thought you'd started too hard there and that you're definitely <laughs> going to blow up. And it just seems yeah. to happen all the time. They always underestimate what orienteers can do, I think. Um, yeah, so that's always think, a funny kind of um, dichotomy that's going on. I think I think orienteering has you know it's it's the stereotypical um, compass around your neck and your your cagoule walking in the hills and you know it's it's what it, it you know that's the sort of perception that people have and you know the more we we could all do to sort of change that I think the better. Um, so you went out to um, Albuquerque for three weeks, I think, was it, with Welsh Athletics? Um, what, what did you, what? Tell us a bit about it and what you kind of learnt from it. Yeah, so, so originally I was planning on doing a sort of short orienteering season this year and doing the JK, doing the British, and sort of just racing a bit domestically, um, but in uh, sort of January time, I, I hurt my Achilles. And then quite soon after, I got a, a sort of call from Welsh Athletics saying, well, do you want to come on a altitude camp? And it was throughout April. And it sort of fell at a nice time that I said, well, um, do you know, actually, it works really well back up. This will be a really good way of sort of kick-starting me from, mm. you know, recovering from injury to then hopefully being quite fit and pushing on. I took some unpaid from work. I took some sort of working remotely and I took some holiday and I cobbled together the the 15 days um, of leave. And it, it was it was great. It was three weeks of just focusing on on training and um, not much else, to be honest. We were staying at about 1800 metres and it was it's a sort of high altitude desert. It was about 20 degrees a lot of the time over there. It didn't rain very much. When it did rain, it absolutely bucketed it down. I managed to convince everyone that I was completely crazy when on the second day I I went for a three-hour run up the nearby mountain. (laughs) There's a theory with altitude that you should take the first few days quite easy, which I did not follow. (laughs) Um, But we were staying next to this this mountain. It was 3,000-odd metres which would be the highest I'd sort of run up to self-propelled, as it were. On on day two, we've sort of, everyone's taking it quite easy. Nothing much is happening in terms of hard running yet. I just thought, well, oh, it won't take me that long. Um, and it, it turned out it did take me quite a long time. Uh, but it was good fun anyway. I, I went out and my Achilles was still a little bit 50-50, but I managed to sort of manage it through and did some good training and, yeah, came back quite fit. Um, yeah, so it was. Yeah, I think it was a success, really. Yeah. And it worked well for the rest of us at uh, JK Sprint. You not turning up and defending your title. <laughs> yeah. so that was a <laughs> yeah, was excellent timing by Welsh Athletics. I think three three years in a row I had the JK Sprint, so I was a bit uh, I was a bit disappointed not to be able to defend that. Try Hello. try knock Will off his off his top spot now. Ah, I've been feeling smug ever since. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and Chris, you mentioned, of course, you, you do work. Um, so how do you actually manage, you know, when you're at home to fit training in alongside uh, your job? So, so I don't think um, I don't think it's that difficult, really. In the in the 
sort of I don't have a, a sort of fam. I don't have children. I don't have sort of much commitment outside of work. So outside of the nine to five is, I mean, there's still quite a lot of hours in the day. So as long as I run before work and I run after work, you know, I can get, well, if I do both of those, I'll get a lot of running in during the week. It's just about priorities. I spend most of my free time running or recovering or preparing to run. So, but that's, I don't, I don't see that as a sacrifice. That's sort of what I enjoy doing. So you don't have to keep, you don't have to get too much motivation to go for all those early morning runs and things like that. It's like, uh, it's like anything. You have good days and you have bad days. It's, um, I always think that getting out the door is the hardest part. And even if you, you know, there's been so many runs where I've gone, I'll just go for, you know, 20 minutes and you end up doing 40 just (laughs) because after you've done 10, you feel fine and you just carry on. I think that the thing with work, um, so full-time work is, is holidays is difficult, um, which is where, where I think with um, sort of the forest orienteering, um, I, find, I find that a struggle because so much of certainly forest orienteering, you need to do training in terms of training camps and mm. the sort of commitments in terms of holidays build up really quickly you kind of you have touched on it already but how how do you personally deal with the the mental and and you've also said emotional side of the sport i think i think the sort of you start off as a sort of junior and it's all about the sort of technical side of things and you know how do you can you take a compass bearing can you sort of judge distance and the sort of higher up the sort of the rungs you get towards world champs and sort of and then eventually performing at world champs it becomes more and more about managing that sort of mental side of things the sort of physical fitness is just it's almost a given you have to be you have to be fit but it's just the mental side of things of actually managing your emotions making sure you don't sort of you know don't get stressed or panic during the race or beforehand and I think a lot of orienteering is about doing the right thing at the right time and once once you can take a compass bearing and you can do it repeatedly it's not so much about a mistake in terms of how you take the compass bearing it's more about well did you take the compass bearing did you take it at the right time and that's I see that as more a sort of a a mental side of things is how you're managing your race absolutely are there any particular things that you do to try and you know manage how you're feeling during a race doing a race is 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 the hardest one i don't i still don't think i've got it um sort of nailed on i work on confidence Mm. and so in the run-up to a world champs i'll try and sort of build just sort of quiet confidence that look i know what I'm doing. I know I have a sort of routine of orienteering uh, and I'm comfortable with that. So I'm comfortable that I will make the right decisions and I can just let it panic and you can just mm-hmm. try and get... It's difficult and it doesn't always work. Um, I've certainly sort of last last World Champs in Riga, I didn't react very well at all. I sort of... Um, it was it was quite a stressful race in terms of it was very busy. Um, city centre streets it was quite narrow but it was also incredibly slippery because every time you you approached a corner you'd be you know number one worrying you'd slip and fall and you know that could be the end of the race anyway but also you'd worry sort of career into a pedestrian or you know you wouldn't be able to stop and there'd be something blocking your way and it just it adds these all this layer of other things and so even though I was, I think I was, my sort of confidence was there with my orienteering and my routines mm-hmm. and everything. And I was prepared, actually mentally, I didn't manage all the extra things. Um, and it's just, it's just sort of a, I think it's like trial and error. You, you sort of have to put yourself in mm-hmm. lots of different situations to see how you respond and, you know, how you can respond well. 
Um, I don't think there's a, a secret. Do you think that extra pressure in Riga came from the results in the European Championships in Switzerland from May? Because obviously you're on the podium there, it was a fantastic run, and and you really kind of showed the potential that you've been building on over the last few years. And do you think there was extra external pressure that you were feeling from other orienteers? Because I know for me inside the team, inside the GB setup, you've always come across as one of the calmest of us all when we've got to races and, and had that steady head and someone I've always looked to to try and emulate. Um, but you, And that was only, probably one of the only times I've seen it come unstuck for you. So I'm just wondering if there was that extra external pressure that maybe you didn't realise at the time or, or that you were putting on yourself subconsciously. Yeah, so, so I'll, start with the, I'll start with the calmest. Like, so I said it's easier to control outside of the race than it is inside the race and I, I i just find when i'm sort of at a you know either at, you know the accommodation or before a race in the in the quarantine or whatever like it can be nerve-wracking but at the end of the day i wouldn't want to be anywhere else mm. because i've put in hours and hours of work and you know, if I was wanted to be somewhere else right there, then it wouldn't that wouldn't make any sense to me. And so I normally find like a few sort of deep breaths and just relax and just try and sort of remind yourself that it's you want to be there. It's not the end of the world, regardless what happens, can sort of settle me quite nicely. The sort of external pressure one's interesting because and whether it's external or internal, but there probably was a bit of extra pressure because I had a, I had a number of years of being being very close to a, a medal in the European Champs. I got the medal finally, and it's quite like a sort of quite a big moment that you can go. Oh well, you know I can do this. But equally, you know I I was fourth in twenty sixteen. I think I was eighth in twenty fifteen, but I think I was eighth and fifteen seconds behind the gold medal or something. Hmm. So walk in Scotland was a mad race. <laughs> it's the closest race I've um I think I've been in. Like I'd been close enough enough times that I knew I could win a medal, I knew I could win the gold. But do you know whether you know, you have that one extra bit of, of pressure, but I don't know, it just, you just have to sort of, you know, roll with it and keep going, yeah. I think. And I think that's the key with, with orienteering being such a, a mentally focused sport with all the navigation and the, the routines and the prep you've got to do. I think that calmness is key for anyone kind of developing at a, at a junior level domestically, if they've got, you know, JWOC selection races or European Youth Championship selection races or if it's at the WOC um, sprint final. I think some people work well when they're sort of quite riled up and but I think it's a it's like a positive association with that like so it doesn't matter it doesn't have to be sort of calm and laid back it can be sort of quite on edge and but it, ha- it has to be positive in my eyes like um it can't be sort of a negative worry or, you know, fear of being there. Yeah, um, and that's that's quite an interesting one, the the kind of different ways that people do it, because I remember being in the arena watching uh, the European Champs um, sprint final and then seeing Matthias Kibbutz on the start line physically yeah. psyching himself up, like pulling faces and, and kind of blaring his eyes at the camera and having to get himself really physically psyched up for it. Yeah. And whereas other people would just, completely calm and collected and there are, yeah obviously there's different ways of doing it for each person um, so everyone needs to remember that i think that yeah, yeah. their way of preparing isn't wrong um just because they Definitely. don't want to stay as calm yeah he beat me in that race as well so <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's not why i mentioned it <laughs> yeah. but um i mean let's move on from um from the chat about the mental side of things but but in terms of staying positive we're trying to do this podcast to try and um you know 
spread the word more about orienteering really get to understand um, the sport from really from the inside and um you know we've noticed you are, have become quite active on social media again to try and spread more about the sport um and i think i remember you saying it was a, a conscious decision to get more active on social media why do you think it's it's so important to make that kind of an effort to be honest i've probably i'd like to be more active but it's just it's not really my sort of personality i'm i'm mm. quite introverted anyway so i'm not one to sort of highlight every single moment but um i just think no one else is going to do it so if you want sort of to get word out there either you know selfishly about yourself you know i think we live in a world now where uh, you know a lot of stuff is you know self-promotion like it or not um but also about the sport and just getting positive stories out there about orienteering is you just have to do it yourself and everyone can produce sort of media these days it's not it's not just sort of the six o'clock news i think as an athlete you have to understand that if to have you know i it's not a financial thing but you know i'd love to have people out there support me at world champs and people have you know i've got i've had people sort of plan trainings and you know cheer me on and whatever and send me nice messages and and the only reason i do that is because or they do that is because i think they know who i am or who the british team are and um and i think you have to keep sort of trying to build that goodwill with sort of the community as it were it, you know i i almost approach it or try to approach it as if like it were were real life as it were which sounds sounds weird <laughs> um but like if you'd say if you'd say congratulations to someone in person I, i'd say it over social media as well and at least then it's highlighting to a whole new group of people like you know if i saw will had a, a really good run in a running race i'd say congratulations because then you know it pops up on someone else's feed it all spreads that sort of good good stuff about orienteering really it's as a sport you know we we sort of touched on it earlier there's there's always going to be that sort of um scout group <laughs> cagoule compass around your yeah. neck image and the more the more sort of stuff that's out there that's not that the better it is for the sport as a whole um yeah it's yeah, yeah. combating the myths i think i think as us as athletes yeah. we realize that there's not many of us out there who are who are trying to pursue the sport at an elite level in terms of the amount of people who participate in orienteering compared to things like football so i think we're all in it we are all in it together mm -hmm. and we try and recognize you know when other people are doing well and promote that because it's it's all good for the sport it doesn't matter who it is it's all beneficial for um for the sport as a whole yeah thanks very much for chris for coming on and and sharing a bit of an insight into into how you work and uh yeah how um orienteering is a sport for you so that was uh chris jones there kind of sharing an insight into his his methodology his life and and how he trains for um his international races both on the track and in orienteering but looking forward, Catherine, we're going to speak about uh, the first World Cup round in Finland next weekend now. Um, so there's three disciplines that are going to be raced over there. There's mm -hmm, a middle mm -hmm. distance on Saturday, 8th of June, chasing start long the next day on uh, Sunday, and then a mixed sprint relay in the centre of Helsinki um, on Tuesday morning. So looking at it, what are your thoughts? Um, Terrain-wise, what are the competitors going to be facing? You know, Any insights you can share? Well, um, I mean, just from looking out at uh, the bulletins, at some of the maps, some of the old maps that they've got, it looks like it's going to be uh, quite rocky forest, lots of bare rock on the map, some small uh, marshes, um, but the runnability seems to be it seems to be really, really nice and mm -hmm. not like reasonably undulating, but not it, it's not a big hillside. I think it's going to be particularly interesting to see. 
um, like how people are preparing for this World Championships, this first uh, Forest World Championships that's going to happen in Norway later this summer. I think we should remind everybody or, or, or inform everybody what actually is a World Cup race, what counts as a World Cup race. Uh, there is a series of World um, Cup races put on throughout the year by the International Orienteering Federation. Um, there's four rounds of it, uh, one um, in June, the World Championships in August, uh, round in this year in Switzerland in September, and another in China in October. International teams can send up to eight athletes to um, this series of races, and you're entered by your national team, which you're selected for from you know, World Cup selection races. For Britain, that's JK. Kind of live as a team for the week. The lowest world-ranked uh, runners will start first, and the highest ranked will start last. For the middle distance, which we're starting off with, it's 90 seconds gaps, um, and it's uh, around about 30 to 35 minute winning time, and that'll be for the fastest runners. So normally it's a bit more phys physical than a uh, a race in Britain because it tracks up for the later runners. So they'll be the why that'll be why they're running the quickest times later on as well. Other than the fact that they are the best out there. Um, you put in quarantine beforehand, so you're you're kind of placed in a sports hall or a school. Um, you're not allowed any phones or technology on you to contact the outside world. You'll then probably be picked up by a bus, taken to a warm-up area, which, again, you won't know where it is. There might be some tents for you to chill out, relax in, and just probably in the corner of the field or at a track junction, there'll be uh, the start. So you'll do your warm-up prep, um, you know, your, your drills, your running. You might head out the warm-up map to hit a couple of controls in what should be the most relevant terrain mm -hmm. there is because it's right on the edge of the competition map and yeah then then start and uh hope that you hope you don't mess up before the finish <laughs> and all that quarantining means that um i can sit in a commentary booth and be looking at where everybody is going they're all wearing gps trackers we've got cameras out in the forest and we can really be able to paint a really good picture of what's going on without the athletes who are waiting to start knowing anything about the course. Lucky enough to, uh, for, for us both to get selected for respective um, disciplines, me <laughs> racing, yeah. you, uh, <laughs> you commentating. You say selected, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's a selection process. Um, yeah, so very lucky that I'm, I've been picked to, uh, to represent GB at this one. Um, it's quite a, as you said before, a pretty key part of the year with everyone having focused on forest this year and not on the sprint side uh, it's going to be interesting to see how some sprint specialists transition over mm -hmm. normally if you're in the forest at a race at a world cup and there's a sprint race as well the sprinters will still focus on that individual race so someone like a Yannick Mikels maybe from Belgium or, or or Chris from Britain they might still just focus on that sprint mm. but now that they're moving on to the forest side you really don't know how some people are going to race and how they're going to perform especially for the long uh, chasing start the next day. A chasing start is not something that we encounter very often in Britain. The winner from the day before will uh, will start on base time and however long uh, someone finishes behind him, they will start at that time. But in the World Cup, that's going to get pretty intense. And mm. uh, having people starting you know, every couple of seconds is it's really going to be absolutely chaotic out there. And I cannot wait for that one, to be perfectly honest hopefully it'll be a really nice race with some uh, opportunity for people to take risks and get ahead of the pack at the end of the course because what we saw in in Norway last summer when they had a chasing start there was a, oh, a group of about you know, 15 men all going around together at the end some of whom hadn't even we could tell hadn't even looked, opened and looked at their maps <laughs> and then it was basically a burn up on the last like two controls and the, the sprint into all the way to the line yeah, I, I think that was one of the most exciting orienteering races I've seen, though, that, that mm. one at World Cup last year. Yeah, you had a couple of people who maybe didn't open their map the entire time, but <laughs> it's it's certainly a very exciting way to uh, to see people race. You see the effort that people are putting in just to cling on to the groups, and it's, it's going to be a burn-up. But what makes it interesting is the bonus seconds they've got going on. So mm. the winner's going to get, I think, a two-minute bonus on their, yes, on their time I think so yeah. and it works down from from first place to 10th so that's going to be quite interesting if 
if someone feels confident enough to push for it from the gun because it's not a full long distance it's only going to be a 75 minute winning time yeah normally yeah. they're around about 90 or 100 so yeah if they've got the confidence to go for it someone like a tove alexanderson or an olev lindenes they might just go for it from the gun and try and break everyone and not even let them catch sight of them people can be so even now on the physical side that it's going to mm-hmm. have to come down to to outroot trusting someone else which is going to be very interesting and yeah for me maybe sitting a few places back from the uh, from the lead um it's going to be even more chaotic so you've got to have some real confidence to break away from the pack to kind of tacked on the end it feels to me because we've got two for very foresty races uh the runners get thrown into the middle of helsinki for a sprint relay <laughs> yeah it's uh it's quite a random one really yeah when we said that this year is all focused on forest orienteering and then there's still a sprint relay put on the end of it um I think we've only got yeah we've only got one team in this year. Sometimes mm. you can have two or three in a World Cup. It goes woman, man, man, woman. In the team is uh, Joe Shepherd, um, Sasha Chaplin. Now uh, it was originally Chris Smithard. Chris um, is now out of the sprint relay due to due to an injury. And um, Megan Carter Davis. Uh, sorry, myself and then Megan Carter Davis rounding it uh, rounding it off. Yeah, it's very going to be hopefully a really really exciting one. Looks. Um very like lots of mainly square blocks old buildings some parks um hopefully should be very very fast Mm. the thing the thing is with the fins though they do like to throw in some artificial barriers so it could be a lot more difficult than it uh originally looks on those um on the maps but yeah like you say big kind of uh, georgian era housing blocks so it could be relatively simple unless they throw some artificial barriers on which i'm going to say 75% 75% sure that they will. Next podcast in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be bringing you some of the fallout from what happened, some results, getting some reflections from uh, from people who are there. Yeah, no, definitely. Hopefully we'll uh, have a couple of interviews with uh, some of the guys in the GP team and um, see how everyone races and uh, maybe even sneak a bit about uh, the Eucla relay in there as well, which we'll uh, update everyone afterwards. But um, Where can people follow us at, uh, Catherine? Well, I have been hard at work making um, a, both a Twitter and a Facebook account, so you can follow us there. We are at the Running Pod, so at the Running Pod for both Facebook and Twitter. So please send us your comments and uh, any questions that you want us to answer as well. Yeah, and uh, thank you very much for everyone for joining uh, for this first episode, and hopefully there'll be a few more moving forward and. Uh, Yeah, just bringing you an insight into the elite scene of Britain and um, what we get up to.